0: This message was presented at the GYC 2015 Conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you brought us here together. It's not a coincidence. We're here at this time, at this place, and at a very special time in world's history. Lord, uh, there are patriarchs and prophets that would have loved to have lived to see the coming of Jesus, not out of the grave, but on earth, alive, and still spreading your message. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up each one of us, Lord, to be faithful sentinels, the watchmen on the wall of Zion. And Lord, I, ta- I pray that today's presentation will help prepare us to be able to defend uh, our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming back and joining us. Our topic this morning is before governors, kings, and the U.S. Senate. And tomorrow at, I believe it's, what, 3.15? Jonathan will be giving our closing presentation. And the presentation will be about current issues having to do with religious liberty, recent developments, so I'm looking forward to hearing that presentation myself. Are you ready, Jonathan? Amen. Uh, all right. <laughs> Yesterday we did a study on the mark of the beast, didn't we? Yeah. And what is the mark of the, beast? It's the ideology of the beast? Okay, I'm hearing different things. It's Sunday worship enforced by law, right? And really... The whole idea of Sunday versus Sabbath, it really reflects what's going on on the inside, isn't it? It's an outward sign of allegiance to God or the enemy. And so it's really just an outward sign, but it means so much. Now, to me, one of the most compelling evidences of the truth of how we interpret the mark of the beast is the fact that Satan has been fulfilling uh, that prophecy, I mean, why is there agitation for Sunday laws? Why have there been Sunday laws? It's because Satan is fulfilling the very prophecies that God gave us in advance. To me, that's powerful evidence. And Thank you. Um, Probably the most significant effort for a national Sunday law in the United States came in the year 1888. And so we're going to be talking about that today. Many Sunday churches were pushing for a Sunday law. There were societies like the Women's Christian Temperance Organization pushing for it. The National Reform Movement was pushing for uh, a national Sunday law. And so they convinced a United States Senator from the state of New Hampshire named Henry Blair to propose a bill that they hoped would become national law. Is anybody here today from New Hampshire? Okay. you guys are troublemakers, <laughs> at least Henry Blair was. No, you're, you're good people. But he was a troublemaker. I'm sure he meant well and he had good intentions. Um, but thankfully, God raised up different people to oppose that bill. And probably the most prominent and convincing voice opposing the bill was a seven-day Adventist named Alonzo T. Jones sometimes called A.T. Jones. Alonzo T. Jones at the time was a professor of theology and history at what was then called Battle Creek College in Michigan. And so he gave a very, very good presentation opposing this bill, and that's what we're gonna be studying today. Now, why do you think it's important to study something that happened over 100 years ago? History repeats itself, right? And I believe God used A.T. Jones to give powerful arguments from the Bible and just from common sense and logic to oppose such a bill. And so I believe that we can learn from this experience and be able to make those same arguments someday. Ellen White said this, "'We have been looking many years for a Sunday law "'to be enacted in our land, "'and now that the movement is right upon us, "'we ask, will our people do their duty in the matter, can we, not, can we not assist in lifting the standard and in calling to the front those who have a regard for their religious rights and privileges? The time is fast approaching when those who choose to obey God rather than man will be made to fill the hand of oppression. Shall we then dishonor God by keeping silent while His holy commandments are trodden underfoot? While the Protestant world is by her attitude making concessions to Rome, let us arouse to comprehend the situation and view the contest before us in its true bearings. Let the watchmen now lift up their voice and give the message which is present truth for this time. Let us show people where we are in prophetic history and seek to arouse the spirit of true Protestantism. Awakening the world to a sense of the value of the privileges of religious liberty so long enjoyed. And I really appreciated Jonathan's presentations yesterday giving us a background on where we come from, what our history is as Protestants. And it culminates with this issue of Sabbath versus Sunday. That is where the final battle lines are being drawn. This is where the Protestant Reformation comes to a head. Let me tell you this, as I look around the world today... I only see one church that actually is still carrying the torch of truth for the Protestant Reformation. And actually only a certain percentage of this church is actually doing that. The trumpet in many of our churches is not giving a certain sound. And it needs to be, right? In Matthew 10, verses 16 and 20, Jesus said this. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you, therefore, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I'm really glad Jesus said that, because it's not always so much what we say, it's the spirit that we say it in. You know, I'm a, uh, one of the ministries I'm, I uh, uh, help organize is called Army Bible Camp. And anybody here ever been to Army? Were you blessed? Well, one of the things that we like to do at Army... Uh, is we like to have a time where speakers uh, ask questions. Normally, you know, at seminars like this, the audience asks the speakers questions, but we kind of reverse it and have the speakers uh, pretend to be prosecutors and ask questions of the audience for them to defend their faith. And um, usually I play the judge just because of my background. And I'll tell you, we've done probably, I don't know, I've probably been involved with about eight or nine of these mock trials But I'll tell you, there was one person that impressed me the most. Of all these trials and all the witnesses that came forward, and I've seen lots of people, many of them come up with arrogance. Like, I know the truth, and I'm gonna teach you the truth. But there was one young man who came with such humility, just a sweet spirit about him. And he had good evidence and good information, but what really caught my eye was the spirit with which he presented. And, and, and would that be said of us, right? So Jesus said, be harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues and ye shall, not you might, not you may, you shall be brought before governors and kings. Why? Not for your own glory or to show off your, what you know, but for my sake, for a testimony against them and the just Gentiles. Somebody said that you can't have a testimony without a test. And that is what's going to be facing us. Jesus said, but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Amen. The reason I mention this is because if I didn't, I know someone would come up and say, why are you worrying what we're gonna say in advance? Jesus says, don't worry about it. He'll give you everything you need then, okay? So I guess we could just end the seminar right now, right? But um, does this mean that we shouldn't study and prepare ahead of time? How can the Lord bring to our remembrance something we've never learned? Now he can put thoughts in our mind we've never learned, right? But he wants us to be prepared. And that's why Ellen White said this about this particular passage. The servants of Christ are to prepare no set speech to present when brought to trial for their faith. Their preparation is to be made when? Day by day. In treasuring up in their hearts the precious truths of God's word, in feeding upon the teaching of Christ, and through prayers strengthening their faith, that when brought into trial, the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance. The very truths that will reach the hearts of those who shall come to hear. God will flash the knowledge obtained by diligent searching of the scriptures into their memory at the very time when it is needed. Maranatha, page 255. So while we shouldn't get our speeches all drafted yet, we should be preparing, right? Filling ourselves with godly knowledge. So let's talk about 1888 and the bill that was proposed to become law. I tell you this was a hard this of the my three presentations this was the hardest to prepare because what I basically did is had to condense and uh, in this book format it's 160 pages to in one hour presentation okay so there's going to be a lot of reading and quotes I hope you don't mind but um, AT Jones was a very articulate sometimes very long-winded individual who made some great arguments And I can't give you everything he said because it took him more than an hour to do so, but I've done my best to condense it. But let's take a look at the bill that was being proposed by Senator Henry Blair in 1888 during the 50th Congress. A bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week. Do you really need a law to enjoy a day? Commonly known as the Lord's Day as a day of rest, So we're clearly talking about Sunday, the first day of the week. And to promote its observance as a day of what? Religious worship. They're not even hiding what the purpose of the bill is. This was specifically to promote religious worship. Can you see a problem already with what they're proposing? Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled, so in other words, the branch of government that makes the laws that no person or corporation or the agent, servant, or employee of any person, sounds like a lawyer wrote this, or corporation shall perform or authorize to be performed any, any secular work, labor, or business to the disturbance of others. What does that mean, to the disturbance of others? Well, we'll be talking about that. Works of necessity, mercy, and humanity accepted, nor shall any person engage in any play, game, or amusement, or recreation to the disturbance of others. There's that phrase again. On the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, in any, in any territory, district, vessel, or place subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of the United States, nor shall it be lawful for any person or corporation to receive pay for labor or service performed or rendered in violation of this section. So in other words, you can't, have people working on Sunday, or getting paid for working on Sunday, or engaging in recreation on Sunday. It also generally prohibits Sunday postal service, military drills, and unnecessary military labor. And I'll spare you reading all those sections. And then it ends by stating what its real object is. To secure to the whole people rest, do you really need the government to give you rest? And notice the religious observance of the Sabbath day, which they're calling Sunday, the Sabbath day. Okay? So they make no bones about the fact that the whole purpose of the bill is to promote religion, religious observance. So today we're going to be looking at 10 points, 10 arguments that I've distilled from 18 Jones's argument. And I think what we can learn a lot from those. Let's take a look at main point number one. And this was really probably the main argument that A.T. Jones made, because he had biblical support for this directly from Jesus himself. Jesus said, render to Caesar what Caesar's, render to God what is God's, which really is advocating the separation of church and state. Caesar represents which, which one? The state, and, and God represents the church, Right? A.T. Jones said this, the principle upon which we stand is that civil government is civil and has nothing to do in the matter of legislation with religious observances in any way. The basis of this is found in the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew twenty-two, 21. Let's take a look at that. The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to give tribute or taxes basically unto Caesar or not? Of course, they were trying to trick Jesus. Jesus said, show me the tribute money, and they brought him a penny. And he asked them, whose image and inscription subscription is on this penny? And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus said, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Brilliant, isn't it? And it's brilliant also because it's true. Should we, as citizens of the land, respect the, the laws of the government? should we do our part as responsible citizens? Christians should be the most law-abiding people on the earth, right? So Senator Blair asked this, if Caesar is society and the Sabbath is required for the good of society, does not God require us to establish the Sabbath for the good of society? And if society makes a law accordingly, is it not binding? It's a pretty good question, when you say? Hey, this is for the good. This is for the good of the community. This is what A.T. Jones answered. It is for the good of society that men shall be Christians, but it is not in the province of the state to make Christians. For the state to undertake to do so would not be for the benefit of society. It never has been. It never can be. In the things which pertain to our duty to God, with the individual's right of serving God as one's conscience dictates, society has nothing to do. Amen? Do we need a law to be able to worship God? If we do, we're in trouble. Mr. Jones said, the people have no right to invade your relationship to God, nor mine. When Caesar exacts of men that which pertains to God, then Caesar is out of his place. And insofar as Caesar is obeyed there, God is denied. When Caesar... Representing the civil government, exacts of men that which is God's. He demands what does not belong to him. In so doing, Caesar usurps the place and the prerogative of God. And isn't that the real problem with the papacy? Anti in place of Christ. Anti-Christ, right? Trying to take the place of God. This Sunday bill does not propose to legislate in regard to the Lord's Day. I'm sorry, it Does. This Sunday bill does propose to legislate in regard to the Lord's Day. If it is the Lord's Day, we are to render it to the Lord, not to Caesar. When Caesar exacts it of us, he is exacting what does not belong to him and is demanding of us that which he should have nothing to do. Do you agree with that? He's, he continues, is it lawful to render Sabbath observance to Caesar or not? Show us the Sabbath, whose image and subscription, whose Image and superscription does it bear? It's a good question, wouldn't you say? The commandment of God says it is the Sabbath of who? The Lord thy God. It bears his image and superscription and his only. It belongs wholly to him. Caesar can have nothing to do with it. It does not belong to Caesar. Its observance cannot be rendered to Caesar, but only to God. For the commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If it is not kept holy, it is not kept at all. Therefore, belonging to God, bearing his superscription, and not that of Caesar, according to Christ's commandment, it is to be rendered only to God. Because we are to render to God that which is God's, and the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Sabbath observance, therefore, or Lord's Day observance, whichever you may choose to call it, never can be rendered to Caesar. And Caesar can never demand it without demanding that which belongs to God, or without putting himself in the place of God, and usurping the prerogative of God. Which is really, again, the problem of the papacy. He continues, that duty of Sabbath-keeping rests solely between man and God, and if any man does not render it to God, he is responsible who? To who? Only to God. And not to any man, nor to any assembly or organization of men, for his failure or refusal to render it to God. And any power that undertakes to punish that man for his failure or refusal to render to God what is God's puts himself in the place of God. Any government which attempts it sets itself against the word of Christ and is therefore anti-Christian. Seemingly to be Christian, promoting a Christian belief is really working against Christ. Are you starting to get the picture here? Our worship to God should not be forced by law, right? Right? If it comes at all, it should be from a willing heart, a heart out of love, not out of force. And then A.T. Jones quotes uh, the first president of the United States, George Washington, who said that every man who conducts himself as a good citizen is accountable alone to God for his religious faith and is to be protected in worshiping God according to the dictates of his own conscience. So in other words... Our founding fathers believed that the only role of government with regard to religion was to protect your freedom to worship God the way you want, even if we disagree with that. And so another question arises that was asked of A.T. Jones. Does Caesar have a right to pass Sunday laws to keep people from work or play to the disturbance of others, whatever that means? This is what A.T. Jones said. Those who keep Sunday and who want legislation for that day ask that other people should be forbidden to work on Sunday because they say it disturbs their rest, it disturbs their worship, etc. Do they really believe that in principle? They will never admit it that their work on Saturday disturbs the rest or the worship of the man who rests on Saturday. If their work does not disturb our rest and worship, our work cannot disturb their rest or worship. In other words, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? They're not concerned about disturbing my rest on Sabbath. Yes, John Baxter. The earlier argument, he put it in the context that applied to either Saturday or Sunday. Is this the first time in his argument where he's bringing in the difference between the two? First time that he's starting to mention the seven-day Sabbath, it may be, but I'd have to confer, I'd have to double check on that. He does it throughout, and he'll direct, more directly get to that. So um, hang tight, and we'll get there, okay? All right, so, and one of the examples that A.T. Jones gave when he talked about disturbing the Saturday or Sabbath keeper, true Sabbath keepers, He cited a convention that he attended in San Francisco where a man said, there are some people in this state who do not believe in Sunday laws and who keep Saturday as the Sabbath. But he said the majority must rule. The vast majority of the people do keep Sunday. Their rights must be respected and they have a right to enact it into law. And so then Jones stood up and said, suppose the seven-day people were in the majority And they should go to the legislature and ask for a law to compel you to keep Saturday out of respect for their rights. Would you consider it right? And he said there was a murmur throughout the whole house. No, no, no. He made his point, didn't he? You know, it's interesting that before A.T. Jones got up to defend and argue against this Sunday law, there was a seven-day Baptist who was up there arguing, and the seven-day Baptist actually had a different argument. He said, look, if you make an exception for us that we don't have to work as seven-day Baptists, if, we don't, if you make an exception that we can work on Sunday, then we're okay with the bill. And someone got up and said, you know what, that man gave away his whole case. And A.T. Jones confirmed They said, he just gave away his whole case. Why should we act for an exception if the law is wrong to begin with? The whole law must be done away. That was his argument, and it really carried the day. Now, let's talk about this issue of disturbing others on Sunday. Because some Seventh-day Adventists have been kind of uncertain on what to do. Like, if, I, if there is a truly a Sunday law that says don't do secular work on Sunday, am I dishonoring God if I actually try to be low-key about doing secular work on Sunday, or should I be right out there bold like mowing my lawn right in front of the neighbors as they head to church and, you know, making sure they know I'm working. What should we do as seven-day Christians, right? Let's look at some counsel we got about what to do on that. Ellen White said, we are not to irritate Sunday-keeping neighbors, okay? Let's be winsome with people, right? There should be a constant walking in all humility. We should not fill in and join upon us to irritate our neighbors who idolize Sunday by making determined efforts to bring labor on that day before them, Purposely to exhibit an independence. Our sisters need not select Sunday as the day to exhibit their washing. I need to show this to my wife. She always wants me to help with the laundry. Anyway, okay. There should not be noisy demonstration. Let us consider how fearful and terribly sad is the delusion that has taken the world captive, and by every means in our power, seek to enlighten those who are our bitterest enemies." In Testimonies of Vayanam, she said this, one does not receive the mark of the beast because he shows that he realizes the wisdom of keeping the peace by refraining from work that gives offense. Okay, so you're not dishonoring God if you choose to be low-key about secular work when there's a Sunday law like this, okay? She also said, but you should continue on with your missionary work with your Bibles in hand, and the enemy will see that he has worsted his cause when you are doing that. All right, so let's move on to the next thing that was said. Senator Blair said, the majority has a right to rule in what pertains to the regulation of society. And if Caesar regulates society, then the majority has a right in this country to say what we shall render to Caesar. This is what Mr. Jones said in response. Very good. But the majority has no right to say what we shall render to God. Nor has it any right to say that we shall render to Caesar that which is God's. If 999 out of every 1,000 people in the United States kept the seventh day, that is Saturday, and I deemed it my right and made it my choice to keep Sunday, they would have no right to compel me to rest on Saturday. And then there was a discussion about blasphemy, which there's a lot of parallels between blasphemy and Sabbath-keeping, right? Or Sunday-keeping. And A.T. Jones referring to an authority on this subject, define blasphemy as this. Willfully saying something that would lessen reverence and respect for God, and here's the clincher, or the accepted religion. And that's the problem. What is the accepted religion? If you go to a Muslim country, what's the accepted religion? Islam, right? You go to a Buddhist country, what's the accepted religion? Buddhism. Buddhism. Uh, under this definition, uh, a Muslim country can prohibit people from preaching Christianity because it goes against the accepted religion. Luther and the Reformers were blasphemers, where Catholic Catholicism was the accepted religion. And they could be lawfully put under, to death under this principle, right? For a Catholic country that says, if you oppose this religion, you will be put to death. You see where this is heading? So H.E. Jones said this about blasphemy. He said, any man in this wide world has the right to lessen men's reverence for the accepted religion if he thinks that religion to be wrong. If blasphemy be a proper subject to legislation by civil government, if it be right for government to make itself the defender of the faith, then the Roman government did perfectly right in prohibiting under penalty of death the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christians had to tell the Roman Empire that the Roman gods were no no God and that there was a higher idea of God, as Jonathan talked about yesterday. They did speak deliberately against the chief deity of Rome and all the gods of Rome. I mean, let's face it, Jesus doesn't share his throne with other gods, does he? So can you have the Roman gods and Jesus? That's what Catholicism tried to do, right? But true Christians said no. It's either Jesus has all or none at all. Um, They did it with the express purpose of destroying reverence for them and for the accepted religion. Rome put them to death. And I repeat, if the principle of the American statutes against blasphemy is correct, then Rome did right. To make this clear, I quote a passage from the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania in defense of this principle in a decision upon this very subject, which says, to prohibit the open public... An explicit denial of the popular religion of a country is a necessary measure to preserve the tranquility of a government. This is very dangerous, isn't it? Because if you're not part of the popular religion, woe to you. That is precisely what the Roman Empire did. Christianity did openly, publicly, and explicitly deny the popular religion of the country. The principle of this decision seems to be that those who represent the popular religion of a country have so, oh, this is really good, I like this. The principle of this decision seems to be that those who represent the popular religion of a country have so little of the real virtue of that religion which they profess, that if anybody speaks against it, it is sure to arouse their combativeness to such a degree as to endanger the public tr- tranquility. <laughs> Therefore, in order to keep civil those who represent the popular religion, the state must forbid anybody to deny that religion. So it's really the people of the popular religion who are stirred up. He says, God's word forbids civil government to have anything to do with that which pertains to God. And instead of teaching his disciples to prosecute, to fine and to punish by civil law, those who speak against them or their religion. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. How can men be brought to respect God or Jesus Christ by civil penalties upon their bodies and goods? In other words, Jesus doesn't operate by force, does he? He wins people by love. How can they respect the religion of men who are ready to prosecute and imprison them? Every principle of the thing is contrary both to the Spirit and the letter of Christianity. The religion of Jesus Christ properly exemplified in their daily lives of those who profess it is the best argument and the strongest defense against blasphemy, both as defined by the scriptures and by the civil statutes. In other words, if you're living it, that's the best witness about blasphemy against blasphemy. The only use that has ever been or has ever made of such laws in any country is to give some religious bigots who profess the popular religion an opportunity to vent their wrath upon persons who disagree with them. Any man who really possesses the religion of Christ will have enough of the grace of God to keep him from endangering the public tranquility when his religion is spoken against. Therefore, I say that we are opposed to all laws of civil government against blasphemy, not because blasphemy is not wrong, but because it is a wrong wrong of that kind with which civil government has nothing to do. In this, we stand wholly upon Christian principle. Do you agree with him? Makes sense, doesn't it? Here's the second main point that he made. He stated that the United States Constitution explicitly separates the church from the state, so that the state should not advance the agenda of the church. And he said that the Constitution separated church and state in two significant ways, okay? The no religious test clause and the First Amendment. Let's take a closer look at those two things. The No Religious Test Clause is actually contained within the original Constitution itself. And this is how it reads in Article 6 of the Constitution. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. So you don't have to be a Catholic, Seventh-day Adventist, or whatever religion to hold public office. But you know there were people like Patrick Henry, who looked at the Constitution and they said, this does not go far enough to protect our rights. We need a Bill of Rights. And so the Bill of Rights actually became the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. Now, which of those 10 amendments do you think were nearest and dearest to the hearts of our founding fathers? The 10th one or the first one? And of the First Amendment, which part of it, because it contains several different clauses, Which clause do you think was nearest and dearest to their heart, the last one or the first one? What does the first clause say to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, also known as the first bill of Bill of Rights? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then they continue on, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Aren't you thankful for the First Amendment? And don't most Americans value the First Amendment? Of course, the one we hear about the most today probably is freedom of speech, okay? But our founding fathers were even more concerned about freedom of religion, okay? So freedom of religion is actually exemplified in the first two clauses of the First Amendment. The first one is sometimes called the Establishment Clause. Government shall not set up or establish a religion. The second clause is known as the Free Exercise Clause. The government shall not interfere with your right to freely exercise God and the God of your choosing, right? We saw a couple examples of that yesterday in Daniel. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image and require people to worship it. That was establishing a religion. And then in Daniel 6, the, the uh, me, Darius, said that Daniel, basically his law prohibited someone from worshiping God the way they chose, like Daniel praying three times a day. That would be an example of interfering with Daniel's free exercise of religion. So they're very connected and related, but they're a little different. The Establishment Clause basically says, um, if you establish a religion, the government's saying you have to do it our way. And to prohibit someone's free exercise is to say you cannot worship God your way, okay? So that's kind of the difference between those two. And so A.T. Jones said that this National Sunday Law would actually be establishing a religion. Isn't that true? And he actually contrasts uh, what the United States stands for with what Rome did. He's saying, look, we're doing something better than Rome did. Uh, In Rome, you could only worship the gods recognized by the government. Um, If you challenge that with something different, you would be punished. Those who came in with new religions that were unrecognized by the public were were considered uh, lawbreakers. And that's exactly what happened with Christians. Because they came in and said, look, we're not going to honor the Roman gods and put incense on the altar. Um, They introduced a God not known to Roman law. That's why they were prosecuted. So Mr. Jones, regarding this, he said, if things pertaining to God be a proper subject of legislation by civil government, then no Christian was ever persecuted. And there has never been persecution in this world. All the Roman Empire did in killing Christians was to enforce the law. Then the question was with the Christians at the time, and the question is with us, is not the law wrong? Did not the Christians have the right to attack the law? That is what they did. When a Christian was brought before the magistrate, a dialogue followed something like this. Magistrate, have you a particular God of your own, a God not recognized by the Roman law? The Christian would say, yes. Magistrate, did you not know that the law is against it? The Christian, yes. Magistrate, have you not introduced a new religion? Answer, yes. Did you know that the law is against it? Answer, yes. Did you not know that the penalty is death for those of the lower ranks? Yes. You are of the lower ranks? Yes. You have introduced a new religion? Yes. You have a God of your own? Yes. What is the penalty? Death. That was all. The Romans enforced the law upon the Christians in the first days of Christianity, and there was no persecution in it if the principle would be recognized that the civil government has a right to legislate religious things. He says, like the early Christians, we deny the right of the civil government to legislate on anything that pertains to our duties to God. Every man has a right to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience because God wants us to be free. Mr. Jones continued, our national constitution embodies the very principle announced by Jesus Christ that the civil government shall have nothing to do with religion or with what pertains to God, but shall leave that to every man's conscience and his God. As long as he's a good citizen, the nation will protect him and leave him perfectly free to worship whom he pleases, when he pleases, as he pleases, or not to worship at all if he pleases. And then he actually, Jonathan mentioned this yesterday. Uh, he mentions the Treaty of Tripoli. Tripoli is uh, today, I think, in uh, Libya, Right? Uh, the United States made a uh, treaty with Tripoli in 1796. And part of that treaty states this, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. You know, there's a movement today, very popular among the Christian right, that this country was, faced, uh, was based and founded upon Christian principles that it's a Christian nation. While I believe the United States is a Christian nation, that doesn't mean that we're trying to force everybody to be Christians, You know, a true Protestant is the best friend any Muslim, Jew, Quaker, or atheist ever had. Because a true Protestant nation says you can worship God however you want, as long as you don't interfere with the rights of someone else. Right? You want to go worship snakes, like they do in some of uh, these places in in the East? Go ahead. You want to worship your dog? Go ahead. But don't interfere with someone else's rights. Boy, they, they make Benjamin Franklin look like he's having a bad hair day there, but anyway. <laughs> all right, so, and he quotes a very famous, uh, well-respected historian named George Bancroft, Bancroft, uh, History of the Constitution of the United States. And this is what George Bancroft said about the United States. And I like what Jonathan mentioned yesterday. If you think about it, having freedom of religion is really something very new in the context of the history of the world. Really to have true freedom, both in religion and with civil laws, is something that only came about through the American experiment. We are very fortunate to live in this country, which for the last couple hundred years has preserved and protected freedom. Other countries don't know that. We take it so for granted, living in a free society, so George Bancroft said this, in the earliest states known to history, government and religion were one and indivisible. Each state had its own special deity, and often these protectors, one after another, might be overthrown in battle, never to rise again. Rome as it is sometimes adopted into citizenship Rome, as it is sometimes adopted into citizenship, those whom it vanquished or destroyed, introduced in like manner and with good logic for that day the worship of their gods. No one thought of vindicating religion for the conscience of the individual Tell a voice in Judea, breaking day for the greatest epic in the life of humanity by establishing a pure spiritual and universal religion for all mankind enjoined to render to Caesar only that which is Caesar's. Who was that voice in Judea? Jesus. That rule was upheld during the infancy of the gospel for all men. No sooner was this religion adopted by the chief of the Roman Empire, which was who? Constantine, then it was shorn of its character of universality and enthralled by an unholy connection with the unholy state, and so it continued till the new nation, the United States, the least defiled with the barren scoffings of the 18th century, the most general believer in Christianity of any people of that age, the chief heir of the Reformation in its purest forms, the United States. When it came to establish a government for the United States, refused to treat faith as a matter to be regulated by a corporate body or having a headship in a monarch or a state. Vindicating the right of individuality, even in religion, and in religion above all, the new nation dared to set the example of accepting in its relations to God the principle first divinely ordained of God in Judea. It left the management of temporal things to the temporal power. But the American Constitution, in harmony with the people of the several states, withheld from the federal government the power to invade the home of the reason, Sorry, the home of reason, the citadel of conscience, the sanctuary of the soul, and not from indifference, but that the infinite spirit of eternal truth might move in its freedom and purity and power. And isn't that what Taj was talking about today? Giving of our heart to God. And I I really think this sums it up well. No one should invade our conscience Our soul. Unfortunately, the papacy thought, well, people need our help. And we're punishing the heretics for their own good. We're going to force them to worship God or else. And so A.T. Jones actually showed that the different people, the prominent men of the day, and women too, actually, uh, he quotes a woman too, uh, that the whole purpose for this National Sunday Law, their whole object, their goal, uh, was to do something unconstitutional. Here are some examples of those, the desired purpose of of this movement, this Sunday Law movement. Dr. Crafts, he said that taking religion out of the day takes the rest out. So clearly this is all about religion, which doesn't that violate the First Amendment, which says you cannot establish a religion? Joseph Cook said, the experience of centuries shows, however, that you will in vain endeavor to preserve Sunday as a day of rest unless you preserve it as a day of worship. And then Dr. Everett's declared Sunday to be the test of all religion, which sounds like the quote we looked at yesterday from um, the cardinal from uh, Boston. Uh, No, the the one recently. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. But um, he, he said that Sunday is the test of religion, right? So these were proponents of Sunday laws, showing that the clear purpose is religious in nature. Senator Blair said this, you've got to establish before you can defeat the ground of Sunday laws that Sunday laws are not good for the good of Caesar, that is, not for the good of society. So in other words, isn't this a good thing? Why, can this, why is the Sunday law a bad thing? So, of course, A.T. Jones, never short of an answer. I didn't, of course, in a transcript, you can't read pregnant pauses, but he never seems to be, uh, you know, he always has something to say. Um, For the state to compel men to do no work is to enforce idleness. Idleness is the root of unlimited evil. It would be far better to allow men to follow their honest occupation on Sunday as they do on other days of the week than to compel them to be idle and thus forcibly throw them into the way of all the temptations and evil that beset men in this world. More than this, to prohibit men from following their honest occupations at any time under penalties of finer imprisonment, or perhaps both, is for the state to regulate honest occupations to the realm of crime and put a premium upon idleness and recklessness. So basically he's saying, look, the government's forcing you not to work and be idle on Sunday. And so what happens when people are idle? Yeah, what's that saying? How's it go? The man is the devil's workshop, right? Which is why I think that, you know, our society's gotten quite a ways away from young people working like they used to on the farms, right? We're all caught up into electronics and there's a lot of idleness. And so he's saying, look, that, that leads to a lot of problems, a lot of crime, a lot of problems. Um, and he said, well, One of the ways that the government tries to keep people from being idle on Sundays is to try to make sure they're in a church, they're attending church, and that if people don't do this on their own, well, then the state will have to force them to do it. And then he argued this, any attempt to enforce religious observances only enforces hypocrisy and multiplies sin because love for God is essential to every act of religious duty. For a man to tender obedience or homage to God when he has no love for God in his heart only dishonors God and does violence to his own nature. For the state to exert its power in compelling men to act religiously and to pretend to honor God when they have in their heart no love for God is only to force them into hypocrisy and to compel them to commit sin, which increased and multiplied by the exertion of national power can end only in ruin and that speedily. I remember when I was going to college, we had to turn in worship cards and you had to attend a certain number of worships. Do they still do that in our colleges? Yes. Now, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. Because on the one hand, I can see why it's important to, you know, have people go to worship, right? But shouldn't it be freely given, freely rendered, right? And so people used to joke about how when we'd go to the movie theater, we'd, they'd be collecting worship cards there, too. And so ultimately, when you become of age, able to make your own decisions, uh, if you're forcing people to be in church and they don't want to be there, you're going to create a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, Sunday laws lead to uh, despotism, which is not good for anybody. And then Jones quotes from the annual address of the president of the National Union at the Nashville Convention in 1887 to show their purpose. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, local, state, national, and worldwide, has one vital organic thought, one all-absorbing purpose, one undying enthusiasm, and that is that Christ shall be this world's king. Yea, verily, this world's king in its realm of cause and effect, the king of its courts, its camps, its commerce, king of its colleges and cloisters, king of its customs and constitutions, the kingdom of Christ must enter the realm of law through the gateway of politics." And isn't that what many Christians are doing today? They think that we have to take over this country, bring it back to moral sanity by having Christians run the political program. But what did Jesus do? Did he try to reform the Roman government? It was full of abuse, right? Jesus did nothing to reform the Roman government, not because he was indifferent but because he knew the secret was not in the government, but in the kingdom of God, the gospel. That's what changes the heart, not law. Jesus Christ himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus Christ has has his entrance to the great, great gateway of the gospel, not through politics. Christianity persuades men instead of trying to compel them. By the purity and love of Christ, Christianity draws men instead of trying to drive them. It is not by the power of civil government, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that Christianity secures the obedience of men in the practice of Christian temperance. Now, I have a very important question to ask you this morning. Should the government legislate morality? How many of you say yes? How many of you say No. How many of you say it depends? How many of you voted twice? (laughs) Like Jonathan mentioned yesterday, it depends. If you're talking about the first four commandments, those have to do with our love for God. That's between us and God. If you're talking about the last six commandments, like stealing, killing, adultery, these things, which has to do with our love for man, our relationship between men, shouldn't the government be involved? Shouldn't you be able to call the cops if someone steals your car? Or kills your, kills your somebody, right? Of course, we need civil laws. And unfortunately, most Christians don't understand this distinction. And so when they, well-meaning Christians say, look, this country is falling apart. We're in a moral sewer. We need to get back to God. They're going to go right to the fourth commandment. But it's going to be a false Sabbath, the Sunday, as a symbol for getting back to God and enforcing morality. And so Jones points out that big difference. His main point, number three, is the government needs to keep out of the first four commandments, which has to do with our relationship between us and God. In that which God has issued demand for the good of men, he has given those things which pertain solely to men's relationship to his God. And he has also given things which pertain to man's relationship to his fellow men. With those things in which our duty pertains to our fellow men, civil government can have something to do. He said, we are seven-day Adventists. But if this bill were in favor of enforcing the observance of the seven-day as the Lord's Day, we would oppose it just as much as we oppose it as it is now for the reason that civil government has nothing to do with what we owe to God. He said, constitutional provisions against the encroachments of the religious upon the civil power are safeguards only so long as the intelligence of the people shall recognize the truth that no man can allow any legislation in behalf of the religion or the religious observances in which he himself believes without for- forfeiting his own religious freedom. Did you get that? And so... One of the things that Senator Blair argued was, hey, if God can enforce Sabbath laws in a theocracy, why can't a democracy do the same thing? And Jones kept arguing, look, we're not a theocracy. God takes care of his laws, his Sabbath, and we live in a civil society, not a theocracy. And so the civil government should just deal, deal with civil matters. This was his fourth point. A Sunday law will ultimately lead to persecution and the Inquisition all over again. Um, here's an example of, and keep in mind, in 1888, many of the states were already enforcing state Sunday laws. Okay? This was an attempt to get the national government to have a national Sunday law within the U.S. territories with the mail service and things like this. The states were already persecuting and prosecuting people for breaking state Sunday laws. Here's a, and, and here uh, in 1885 the St. Louis Globe Democrat newspaper noted it is a little singular that no one else has been troubled on account of the law, in other words the Sunday law, with perhaps one minor exception, while members of the above denomination, speaking of 7 day Adventists, are being arrested all over the whole state. It savors just a trifle of the religious persecution which characterized the Dark Ages. Um, in other words, there were not just 7 day Adventists working on Sundays. And, and some of the states um, were, were rounding up, particularly the Seventh-day Adventists who would go to church on Sabbath and work on Sunday. Uh, Do you realize that hundreds of seven-day Adventists were arrested for working on Sundays in the 1800s? Hundreds. Uh, Some of them in Tennessee, Arkansas, mostly in the South. They were singled out for doing things like helping shelter a widow, roofing a schoolhouse, planting potatoes, hunting squirrels. Yeah, some even died. It was kind of funny. I was reading the book Hindsight by David Fiedler. And he said that in one case, a prosecutor was trying to show that Sunday labor was disturbing others because it took place right next to a church. But then the defense attorney just had to ask one question. Well, what church were they working next to? Answer, a Seventh-day Adventist church. <laughs> so much for that. And another thing that happened here Um, they mentioned that in Rome, when they had Sunday laws prohibiting people from working, people used that as an excuse to just go to the, the circus and the theater and just say, oh, we'll just make it a day of play and revelry. And a lot of crime took place because of that. And so then the government shut down the circuses and the theaters. And... But then they still were trying to get people to attend church. And so they started making laws forcing people to go to church against their will. And this led to a lot of problems. They implemented Augustine's thinking to do so. Augustine was a saint and a Catholic church father, and he wrote this. It is indeed better that men should be brought to serve God by instruction than by fear of punishment or by pain but because the former means are better, the latter must not therefore be neglected. (laughs) Many must often be brought back to their Lord like wicked servants by the rod of temporal suffering before they attain to the highest grade of religious development. And then a historian named Neander remarked, and A.T. Jones quoted him, it was by Augustine then that a theory was proposed and founded which contained the germ of that whole system of spiritual despotism of intolerance and persecution which ended in the tribunals of the Inquisition. are about out of time, aren't we? Um, keep going. Okay, I'll make this quick. Main point number five. A.T. Jones argued that Sunday is not biblical. He read the fourth commandment, which clearly shows it's the seventh day we keep holy, not the first. And he even quoted some Protestants who acknowledge that the Bible does not tell us to keep the first day of the week. Here's a couple of those quotes. And then Mr. Jones said, if then they confess that Christ gave no law for its observance, why do they want to compel people to observe it? What right have they to compel anybody to observe it? I deny their right to compel me or anybody else to do what Christ never commanded any man to do. Um, And he mentions how Sunday laws came about through a uniting paganism and Christianity. Which created the papacy and in turn Sunday laws. You know, another thing that was really interesting that he pointed out he said, You know, the Sunday theologians, they get out from under the seventh day commandment by saying, Well, this commandment's so indefinite, just keep a day of rest. And then they turn around and say, You have to keep Sunday. And this is what he said. But the theologians, just as soon as they make it indefinite to escape the obligation which it enjoins to observe the seventh day, then make it definite in order to sustain the supposed obligation to keep the first day of the week. Consequently, when they make it definite after having declared that the Lord made it indefinite, they assume the power and the prerogative to do what the Lord intentionally declined to do, and in that they put themselves above God. Main point number six, worship of God cannot be forced but must be voluntary. Force versus freedom. Main point number seven. A Sunday rest law will eventually lead to forced worship. See, because keep in mind, this national Sunday law didn't say you had to worship God. It just said you have to desist from working. Desist from working, right? But he said the next step is to force worship. And uh, he actually cites state laws that actually do that. Like Connecticut, 1821 had a law. It shall be the duty of the citizens of this state to attend the public worship of God on the Lord's Day. Not just stop from working. You have to be in church. Uh, South Carolina had a Sunday law. All and every person whatsoever shall, on the Lord's Day, apply themselves to the observation of the same by exercising themselves therein on the duties of piety and true religion, publicly and privately, and having no reasonable or lawful excuse, on every Lord's Day shall resort to their parish church or some other parish church, or some meeting or assembly of religious worship. In other words, you better be in church on Sunday, or you're going to be prosecuted. Georgia had a law like that, too. Mr. Jones said, To those Protestants who are so anxious to make religion a subject of legislation, it now appears very desirable. And it also appears a very pleasant thing to secure the alliance of the papacy. But when they shall have accomplished the feat and find themselves in the midst of the continuous whirl of political strife and contention with the papacy, not alone for supremacy, but for existence, then they will find it not nearly so desirable as it now appears to their vision, blinded by the lust for illegitimate power. In other words, you're going to play, you're going to dance with the papacy, they're going to eventually take over. And you're not going to like that. Main point number eight the majority versus the minority. Sunday laws don't protect Sunday worshipers. They persecute seven day Sabbath keepers who work on Sundays. In other words, you know what this is, what A.T. Jones said? This is very brilliant. He said, Look, the Sunday worshipers are in the majority, so they don't need a law to protect the majority. The majority in a democracy never needs a law for protection. Who is it that needs protection? It's the minority. The majority can protect themselves. They don't need a law to do so. It's the minority that need protection. Main point number nine. Sunday laws are not about protection. They're about power and control. And he talks about Sunday work or play that quote unquote disturbs others. He said, this leaves it entirely with the other man to say whether that which I, which I do disturbs him. And that is only to make every man's action on Sunday subject to the whim or caprice of his neighbor. And by the way, there were people that would go spy on 7 day Adventists. Ooh, he was working in the cornfield on Sunday, and then he, the sheriff would come out and arrest him. Neighbors are spying on neighbors. Everybody knows that it requires a very slight thing to disturb one who has a spite or prejudice against you. Mr. John, uh, this is his closing argument, and uh, I'm going to end with this. I believe this is his argu- closing argument. Let me just look. Yes, let me go ahead and read his closing argument. Kind of sums it up. It is a serious thing to tamper with the commandment made so plain by God, the author of the fourth commandment. It is a reckless disregard of official oath and public duty for the government to legislate a false Sabbath. This puts the United States government into the place where it establishes an institution as the Lord's and enforces its observance, which is directly contrary to the plain word of the Lord. The government will either have to become the authoritative interpreter of scripture for all the citizens of the government or else it will have to put itself in the place of God and authoritatively declare that observances established by the state And which it calls the Lord's are the Lord's indeed, although the word of the Lord declares the contrary. Is the United States government ready to take either of these positions? The taking of either of these positions by the government would be nothing else than for this enlightened nation in this period of the 19th century to assume the place, the power, and the prerogatives of the governments of the Middle Ages in enforcing the dogmas and the definitions of the theologians and executing the arbitrary and despotic will of the church. Thus, from whatever point the subject of Sunday laws may be viewed, it plainly appears that aside from the papacy, there is no authority whatever for Sunday laws, nor even for Sunday keeping, and that the only effect that a national Sunday law can ever have will only be evil and that continually. Let Congress now and forever decidedly and utterly refuse to have anything to do with it in any way, whatever." And let all the people, instead of sanctioning a movement to bring the national legislation down to the degraded level of the states on this subject, put forth every effort to bring the legislation of the states up to that place, where it shall be limited as the power of Congress is limited by the declaration of the national constitution that it shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now in the name of law, constitutional and statutory, moral and civil, in the name of enlightenment and progress, In the name of reason and the revelation of Jesus Christ, I seriously ask, why should the people of such a nation as this, living under such a constitution as is our national constitution, be asked to return to the papal system in the dark ages, which was the only inevitable outcome of the wicked scheme that was conceived in sin, the man of sin and brought forth in iniquity, the mystery of iniquity in the days of Constantine. Why should a people, such a people as this, dwelling under the best constitution, and the most enlightened influences of all ages be asked to return to the wicked system that characterized the Middle Ages. No, sir. The noblemen who pledged their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, when they established our constitution, separated as they supposed forever, this nation from all the wicked influences of the church and state, systems of the colonies, of England, and of all other nations of all times. Amen. And under this constitution, in true liberty, civil and religious, in genuine enlightenment and progress, this nation has deservedly stood as the beacon of light for the world for a hundred years. Let this splendid nation ever still look forward and not backward. In other words, we should be looking in the windshield rather than the rear view, right? Like Taj talked about. Let it still hold its honor place before all the nations and God forbid that by any such effort as is now being made in behalf of this Sunday law, this glorious nation should be brought down from her high place and made to fall in the papal train. Finally, one last slide. Gentlemen, no further argument is needed to show that the Sunday laws of all the states and the principles of the decisions of the supreme courts which sustain them are wholly wrong. Springing from the papal principle of church and state and supported by the equally un-American principle of the omnipotence of the legislative power. They are totally subversive of, of American principles, yet Sunday laws have never been and can never be sustained on any other principle. And this is only to say that which is the sum of all this discussion, there is no foundation in justice, in right, or even in expediency for any Sunday laws or Lord's Day laws or Sabbath laws under any government on this earth. Amen. Here's my 10th point. God is calling you to be the next A.T. Jones. Will you accept the calling? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for those that have come before us who have faithfully defended the faith. Lord, I pray that we would continue to carry that baton of truth and liberty, promoting the true gospel of freedom of choice and love for you. Lord, may we be faithful, especially when times of persecution come. And when we are called to appear before the rulers of this world, Lord, may you put in our hearts and minds the very words you want us to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.